0: Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, my name's Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the second and final part in our series on Francisco Vázquez de Coronado and the Seven Cities of Gold. Quick note... There is a map of Coronado's exploration route on our website, ExplorersPodcast.com. And with that, notes are done. Let's get going. We left the Coronado expedition in the T-West region of the Rio Grande Valley, which is around modern-day Albuquerque and Santa Fe, as the winter of 1540-41 came to a close. The winter months had been brutal ones on the native Tewa people. The Spanish had come into the area, seized food, clothing, shelter, and women. And when the Tewa people fought back, a war began called the Tewesh War, which is the 1st name war between Europeans and Native Americans. The Spanish had burned to death dozens of men in one village, seized a bunch of pueblos, and conducted a months-long siege of the region's Mesa stronghold, Moho, eventually starving out the surviving population. It was so brutal, one of the Spanish commanders, García López de Cárdenas, was actually convicted of war crimes. I mean, if the Spanish thought that guy went too far, then you know it was really bad." Honestly, Vasquez de Coronado and his army played out the campaign in a way that was like the worst stereotype of a wandering army in the New World. They came looking for gold. They took what they wanted, when they wanted, with little regard for the native people. They raped, killed, and savaged those who resisted them. In the descriptions of the expedition, there is an almost casual acknowledgement about the violence. It was a constant thing, day in and day out. Some of it is pretty nasty hangings, the cutting off of hands, drawing and quartering, you get the idea. And while the main Spanish army was never threatened by the natives anywhere in our story, the violence is persistent and will wear on Coronado's forces over time. Sometimes there's this weird thing about the Spanish that is frustrating. They are curious, brave, and bold, and they're willing to endure immense hardships. They often do extraordinary things, yet they display an arrogance that is, at times, crippling. Anyhow, Coronado and his men were severely disappointed by the lack of wealth the natives had possessed. The supposed cities of gold were just dusty pueblos. But the expedition had again caught gold fever, thanks to the stories of a native Indian slave called the Turk. The Turk told Coronado and his men about the city of Quivira, which lay to the east. The city, the Turk said, was so wealthy that people drank from cups of gold and ate off of golden plates. The Spanish tested the Turk, showing him various metals, and he quickly picked out the gold and the silver. The Turk talked a good talk, and Coronado and the Spanish were enthralled by what he said, so enthralled that they ignored other voices, who said the Turk was a big fat pants on fire liar. And so Coronado left a garrison in Tewash and prepared to move east to find the city of Quivira. The Turk, by the way, told the Spanish not to bring too many supplies. He told them there was plenty of food along the way, plus they could move quicker and they'd have more room to carry all the gold that was awaiting them. Of course, the Spanish thought this was a great idea. I do want to mention that while the expedition had the Turk as an interpreter and guide, there were other native Indians who acted in the same capacity. Coronado led his army east from Tiwesh, through the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and into the Texas Panhandle. They crossed over the Canadian River and continued east, possibly along the Red River. The route taken by Coronado's expedition is, to be honest, murky. This territory lacks a lot of physically distinctive landmarks, and the writings of Pedro de Castaneda and others is very generic. In fact, the vague generic quality of the American plains is a big characteristic of the journey to Quivira. These are endless prairies dominated by massive herds of bison. To the Spanish, these were fields of grass as far as the eye could see. One of the really distinctive descriptions about this time were the steps the Spanish had to take to go hunting. Castaneda said the land was so endlessly flat and filled with high grass, at midday a man could get lost if he wasn't careful. There were simply no reference points to follow. The men took to hunting later in the day, when they could use the sun as a reference, and it was common for men to beat drums, blow trumpets, and fire off their muskets to give other soldiers a reference point. The Spanish took the marking their route by piling up bones in horse dung, or they'd drive stakes into the ground. All of this was so that those in the rear could stay on the trail. Despite all of this, men were getting lost all the time. Castaneda said the big, tall, thick grass of the prairie often sprung right back up once a man walked over it, swallowing the trail as if it had never been there. The native peoples encountered on the march were mostly Plains Indians, people who moved with the bison herds. They usually stayed clear of the Spanish, and thus there were not many hostile encounters. One group of natives seen by the Spanish were called Carichus by Coronado. These were likely Apaches following the buffalo. However, there were some interactions, and this led to some doubts about the truth to the stories told by the Turk. The Indians the Spanish encountered knew nothing about gold or silver, and some questioned the route the Spanish were taking, saying Quivira was to the north. This made Coronado suspicious, and soon after that, the Turk directed the Spanish army north. Now, a few things to talk about as the army marched through Texas and into modern-day Oklahoma and Kansas. First, in Texas, the men encountered a native Indian who said he had met four men like the Spanish several years earlier. This was likely Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, who had ventured into southern Texas six years earlier. Second, while out on the plains, the expedition was engulfed by a violent hailstorm. Castaneda reported hailstones as large as bulls. Men and animals were injured by the storm. Tents were destroyed or damaged. All the army's crockery was smashed to pieces. Third, food was becoming an issue. There was little except bison to eat, and that took time to hunt. With that in mind, in mid-June, Coronado elected to split up his army. He would lead a small detachment, consisting of 30 to 40 of his best and healthiest horsemen, toward Quivira the rest of the army would return to Tiwesh. They simply were going too slow and didn't have enough food for everyone. This was now a reconnaissance mission, rather than an expedition of conquest. Coronado wanted to find Quivira, and if it was worth a full-scale military expedition, he would return the following year. But now he simply had to find a place that was worth conquering. And so Coronado and the rest of his men moved in a northeasterly direction, the Turks still telling them tales of the splendor of Quivira. Despite their suspicions, the Turk kept the men spellbound with his stories. Again, we don't know the exact route of Coronado, but he eventually moved into modern-day Kansas. In the process, the horsemen crossed the Arkansas River near present-day Dodge City, becoming the first Europeans to see that river. Coronado and his men followed the Arkansas for three days, and then had a big break when they encountered some natives hunting buffalo. These were Quivirans. The Quivirans, by the way, are a Southern Plains Indian people who we today call the Wichita. The Quivirans were afraid of the Spanish, but were calmed when some of the guys were able to speak their language. They agreed to take the Spanish to their home. On July 29, 1541, Coronado and his small party reached the lands of Quivira, which, I want to point out, was an area, not a city. Today, it is around what is now Wichita and Salina, Kansas. What the Spanish found was disappointing. They had traveled at a bare minimum 650 miles, or 1,050 kilometers, and what they found was a village of 200 thatched huts surrounded by fields of corn, beans, and squash. It was nice, but nothing more. There was no gold, no silver, no jewels, no great buildings. The only thing of note was a man who wore a piece of copper. Coronado's expedition was now, without a doubt, a failure, at least in the eyes of the Spanish. The expedition stayed in Quivira for 25 days, food plentiful as the many rivers and streams made the lands good for cultivating crops. Coronado traveled 100 kilometers, or 65 miles, from one end of the land of Quivira to the other. He was even able to meet some of the neighboring tribes. But it was all a disappointment. Coronado and his men saw no gold or silver, and those they spoke with knew nothing about it as well. There was definitely no golden city in the region. And with that, we can bring a close to the story of the Turk, the native Indian who had led the Spanish across the American plains with wild tales of treasure and prosperous cities. Here, he finally admitted to the Spanish that he had been lying the entire time. The reasons? First, his own homeland was closer to this area, and he had hoped to get there. And second, and more importantly, he had plotted with the native people back in Tewesh to lead the Spanish away in hopes that it would destroy them. Remember, the Turk had encouraged the Spanish to not take many supplies, and then he had led them east and even south. He said the goal had been to exhaust the food of the Spanish and get them lost in the plains. This way, they would perish in the wilderness, or if they did get back to Tiwesh, they would be weak and their numbers depleted, making them easier to defeat. Coronado had the Turk garroted, which means he was strangled to death. The man, by the way, is regarded as an Indian hero. He had used disinformation to lead the Spanish army away from the beleaguered pueblos of Tiwesh. If Coronado had not sent back the bulk of his army earlier, it might have worked. Anyhow, Coronado's excursion north was done. It was late August, and he needed to return south before the weather turned bad. And thus, the Spanish force departed Quivira. The men and horses were mostly healthy, so they made steady progress southwest across the plains. Coronado's column reached Tiwesh on October 20th, 1541, a two month march from Quivira. At this point, Coronado talked about returning the following year and widening his search. And thus, another winter in Tiwesh was now on the menu. However, events were in motion that would ultimately end such plans. First, Coronado's expedition was fraying after more than two years in the field. At least a couple dozen men had died in the fighting, and others from illness, and many more had gone back to New Spain due to injuries and sickness. And this was too, not just for the Spanish soldiers, but for the Indian allies who had come with them from Mexico. Many of these people had died or were sick or lonely. Some deserted, finding new homes with the local tribes. Others just skipped out in the night, heading back to their homes in Mexico. Plus, elements of the army were spread out, some of them isolated and frustrated, by what had become, essentially, garrison duty. These men had come for treasure and glory, not watching over a dusty Pueblo with hostile natives around every corner. And that leads me to my second note. The natives of the region were a constant threat to the Spanish, and it was likely only a matter of time before something really bad happened. In a place called the Suya Valley in Arizona, the native people attacked a Spanish outpost, killing numerous men in the fight. The soldiers had to abandon the post and flee to Cibola, where the Spanish had a larger presence. The truth is that the Spanish had come to these places and used surprise and superior weaponry to take control, but the natives were adapting, and that can be deadly for an occupying army. And third, and most importantly, in March, Coronado was out riding when his saddle broke and he fell off and into the path of another horse. He took a hoof to the head. He would remain unconscious for several days, lingering at death's door. The expedition's commander would eventually recover from the riding accident, but he was reportedly a changed man. One soldier said he, quote, showed a mean disposition, end quote. The accident had spooked Coronado in an odd way. He said that an astrologer friend had predicted that he would die from a fall in a strange land. Thus, he brooded over his future, and after two years in the wild, he longed to return home to see his wife and children. And so, Coronado made the tough call. The expedition was done. It was time to head back to Mexico. The decision was met by a variety of emotions from the men. Some wanted to stay. They wanted to go back to the frontier and find the city of gold that they were sure was out there. This was especially true for those who had invested a lot of their own money in the expedition. They had bought armor, weapons, and horses, and they were going home with only a few bits of turquoise. Hardly what they expected. Some of the men wanted to stay and receive land grants, allowing them to set up an encomienda system like back in New Spain. These men understood the value of such a system, and sought to make their fortune by forcing servitude on the population, or having them mine or farm or whatever to make the land profitable. Such a system, however, needed a larger and more permanent military force, not to mention the approval of the higher-ups back in Mexico, so that was not an option. Others were more than happy to head home, they longed for family and friends, and they were convinced, rightfully so, that no great city or empire existed in these lands. All of this led to a growing discontent amongst Coronado's men. They grumbled at the rough conditions, the lack of wealth, and the lack of any good future prospects. To them, the expedition was a big bust. It didn't help that the expedition's general had become moody and ill-tempered. Things were so bad, one group of men just left, heading south on their own. And so, in the spring of 1542, Coronado led his men from Tewash to Cibola, collecting any remote garrisons along the way. It was then south to New Spain, through the rugged mountains and barren plains of northern Mexico. As the men moved south, they grew more and more discontented, almost rebellious. In all honesty, Coronado had lost them. On the march to Culiacan, the expedition was met by reinforcements led by Juan Gallego, and there was again talk of heading back north. But not enough of the men were willing to make such a commitment, and so south the column continued. Every day there were encounters, often hostile, with the native Indians, and the further south the expedition got, the more desertions there were. The native Indian allies left to go join their people, and as the Spanish approached Culiacan and other towns, soldiers did the same thing. From Culiacan, the expedition continued on to Compostela, the capital city of Nueva Galicia. When Coronado marched into the town, he had fewer than a hundred of his soldiers remaining. He had left with upwards of 350. From Compostela, it was on to Mexico City, where Coronado presented himself to his boss, and things did not go well. Pedro de Castaneda wrote this quote, He, meaning Coronado, made his report to the viceroy, Don Antonio de Mendoza, who did not receive him very graciously. End quote. Castaneda then added this about Coronado quote, His reputation was gone from this time on. End quote. And with that, the Coronado expedition was, at this point, done. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Before going on and talking about the aftermath of the expedition and its legacy, I have one related item that I want to share with you. So, while Coronado and his army had left the American Southwest, a few people had remained specifically two priests, Friars Juan de Padilla and Juan de la Cruz. They had stayed to convert the natives to Christianity. No matter what you think about missionaries, it's hard not to admire the bravery and dedication men like Padilla and de la Cruz demonstrated. They had stayed on the frontier, but without any support or protection. Now it was just them, plus a few servants, and the native peoples, who could be unpredictable and hostile. Well, the results were not good. Within the year, the two men were dead, killed by the natives. Such fates were not uncommon for these early missionaries. In fact, many expected such an end. No matter, the two friars were dead, martyrs in the eyes of the church. And so, that brings us back to Francisco Vázquez de Coronado. He had returned to New Spain, his expedition a failure, pretty much in the eyes of everyone. There was no gold or silver, no gems, no prosperous kingdom to conquer. Everything had pretty much been a bust. Men had died or been made invalids. Fortunes had been lost, including those of Coronado and Mendoza. It's no wonder the Viceroy was upset with his protégé. And the expedition had led to other issues. Coronado's province, Nueva Galicia, had been drained of soldiers to conduct the expedition. This made the area ripe for rebellion, and such a revolt did take place, called the Mixton War. With Coronado in the north, Viceroy Mendoza had been forced to raise a huge army, including tens of thousands of Indian allies, to battle rebellious natives in what is now the modern-day state of Jalisco. The result was a long, bloody, and expensive war, That it had happened with Coronado gone adventuring in the north was lost on no one. Many blamed him for leaving the region ill-equipped to handle such a situation. No matter if things were done, Coronado's reputation was in tatters. He went back to his job as governor of Nueva Galicia, but only for a short time. By 1544, he was removed from his position. Now, at this time, a Spanish colonial governor was required to have an evaluation conducted by a court when he left office. For this, anyone could file charges or comments about the outgoing governor in a 40-day period. For Coronado, most of the stuff that came up was minor, a few claims about small unpaid debts. But Coronado had upset a lot of people with his failed expedition. Many people had lost money or loved ones, so he had enemies. Thus, regarding the expedition, some charges were brought against him. These included excessive cruelty to the Indians, a failure to perform duties as a leader of an expedition, and the wasting of munitions and supplies. The court did an investigation, which took years, and ultimately exonerated Coronado, saying he, quote, had performed his duties with faithfulness, end quote. And while that might seem pretty good, the investigation was not a pretty thing, which I will talk about in a bit. Now, the specifics about Coronado's life after the expedition get somewhat mixed. It appears that the financial failure of the expedition forced him into bankruptcy, and he lost some or all of his wife's estates. There are some stories that he lost everything and that his family was left in poverty when he died, but that's not true. While it is unlikely he ended up rich, he was still a nobleman by birth and had familial ties to important people. Most things I found about Coronado said he went back to Mexico City and served on the city's council until his death. From all appearances, Coronado and his family were comfortable. As I mentioned in the first episode, he and his wife Beatriz went on to have eight or nine children. Finances and reputation aside, Coronado's problems appear to have been mostly health-related. He was only 31 or 32 when he returned from the expedition, but he had suffered numerous injuries, including one to the head. Those can be very hard to recover from. Coronado died in Mexico City on September 22, 1554, as a result of an infectious disease. He was 44 years old. And that ends the life of Francisco Vázquez de Coronado, Spanish conquistador. Now, I want to talk about three things to wrap up this episode. First, I want to do a quick look at a few people from our story. Second, I want to do a brief take on the ramifications of Coronado's expedition, both to the Spanish and the indigenous people. And finally, I want to talk about Coronado's legacy, because it is a mixed one that has evolved over time. So, let us talk about three people, other than Coronado, from our story. First, we have Antonio de Mendoza, The Viceroy of New Spain managed to recover from the financial blow that was the Coronado Expedition, as he was a wealthy man with many resources. Mendoza was generally praised in his day for his political and economic initiatives in the New World. He focused a lot on the infrastructure of New Spain, including making things more amenable to families. He built hospitals and schools and encouraged improvements and innovations in agriculture, ranching, and mining. Under his rule, he helped bring stability to New Spain. He had also been a champion of exploration during his time as Viceroy. And this wasn't just Coronado. There were naval expeditions up the North American coast and across the Pacific. However, the Coronado expedition would, for the most part, temper his enthusiasm for such ventures. Mendoza became Viceroy of Peru in 1550, but died two years later from an illness at the age of 56 or 57. The second person I'll mention is Friar Marcos de Niza, the man who had kick-started the entire expedition with his exaggerated reports of Cibola. Well, the man returned to Mexico City, his reputation amongst the Spanish colonial officials in the dumps. However, amongst his order, the Franciscans, he was fine. He went on to hold good positions within the order's leadership in Mexico over the course of his life. He died in 1558 after a long series of health problems at the age of 62 or 63. And the final guy I'll mention is Pedro de Castaneda, the chronicler of the Coronado Expedition. Castaneda wrote down his story shortly after returning from the expedition, And made a copy of it upon returning to Spain. The original was lost, but the copy was eventually published in 1596. It is one of the best original source documents of the era. I'm being honest when I say that I probably did not do Castañeda's book justice. While anything from nearly 500 years ago is a difficult read, Castañeda really did a marvelous job bringing to life this area that Europeans had never been to before. He doesn't just describe the Spanish and their adventures, but he goes into detail about the people and the places they encountered. It's a great little time capsule, a glimpse at a place before it would forever be changed by the coming of Europeans. Regarding Castaneda, other than his book, nothing is known about the fate of the man, except that he eventually returned to Spain. And that wraps up that part of our tale. Next, I want to talk briefly about how Coronado's expedition affected the areas that he went to in 1540 to 1542. I'll start by saying that the most dramatic stuff that occurred was in the area of Cibola and Tihuech here, the Spanish engaged in warfare with the local people. They were conquistadors, after all, and fighting is what they expected to be doing. The rest of the regions Coronado and his men went to were smaller excursions, 20 and 30 and 40 men. The Spanish could not afford to antagonize the locals with these smaller numbers, so those people were much less affected by the Spanish arrival. Anyhow, the Spanish would not return to these locations for another 40 years. Evidence of Coronado's men was, by that time, mostly gone. The stories of the Spanish were almost legends to the local people. The one thing the Spanish did take note of was the presence of light hair and light skin among some of the natives, evidence of sexual interactions between the Spanish and the locals. Now, regarding the population of the natives, such as the Tiwa and the Zuni, they, without question, suffered due to the Spanish expedition. There had been a lot of deaths due to the fighting, but there would have also been all sorts of losses as a result of the Spanish taking food, shelter, and clothing from the locals. Many of the Native American communities at this time and place lived on a razor's edge with regard to survival. And when a thousand guys come in and take the food you had stored for the winter, and take the home and clothing you were depending on to protect you from the cold, well, that's going to cause a lot of pain and probably a lot of death. So, as I said, when the Spanish did return to the region in the 1580s, there was little that would have indicated that their countrymen had been there 40 years earlier. However, there were signs that some Pueblos may have been abandoned. Was this result of Coronado? Possibly. That the local population did not fully rebound from their losses would not have been a shocker. And the other wild card I have not discussed is disease. It's pretty common for diseases such as measles and smallpox to sweep through native populations once they are exposed. What had the Spanish brought with them on the Coronado expedition? Again, we don't know for sure, but it's likely that there were some kinds of diseases and illnesses that found their way amongst the native peoples. These could have been devastating, but in this case, we don't know the full ramifications. Otherwise, the locals were free of the Spanish, but only for a time. Coronado's expedition had identified good lands to settle, and eventually the Spanish would return, and this time, they were there to stay. The area around Santa Fe would become a key Spanish trading post beginning in the 1600s. So, that wraps up that part of our story. Now, I want to finish up this series by talking about the legacy of Francisco Vazquez de Coronado and his search for the legendary cities of gold, a.k.a. Cibola. The first thing I want to note is that after the expedition was concluded, everyone, from the viewpoint of the Spanish, considered it a big, giant failure. This had been about money, and it had failed miserably regarding that aspect. Coronado had been bankrupted by the expedition, Mendoza had lost a fortune, and many of the men of the expedition lost all they had on the failed enterprise. They had returned to New Spain penniless. Added to the mix was the fact that what Coronado found was not very encouraging, at least from an economic standpoint. Small villages, arid landscapes, stuff like that didn't excite anyone. You can mix in the human cost of the expedition as well. Dozens of men had died. Many others had been maimed. It all made Coronado's expedition a colossal waste. However, while in Coronado's time this was a failed enterprise, over the years people developed a bit of a different take on the man and his venture. The first thing was the recognition of the scope of Coronado's travels. You look at a map of his route, and you're like, hey, that's pretty amazing. Sure, he had not found any cities of gold or great native empires, but you know what? They didn't exist. There's no way he could have done that. So as historians found that out, they cut the man some slack. Instead of dissing Coronado the Conquistador, they embraced Coronado the Explorer, and for good reason. I read that he and his men marched upwards of 6,000 miles, or nearly 10,000 kilometers, on their journeys. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but even half of that is impressive. Coronado, in the various offshoots of his expedition, had filled in a lot of territory of what was a big blank map to the rest of the world, and his expedition had found lots and lots of cool stuff, the first Europeans to do so. These things on the quote-unquote discovery list include the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River, the Arkansas River, the Upper Rio Grande, the Great Plains, Bison, and all sorts of native tribes. The naval expedition, which is often forgotten about, proved that the Baja Peninsula was actually a peninsula and not an island. Many people had thought that the Colorado River Delta would lead to the Pacific. Theory disproved. Coronado and his men did all of this by traveling through often difficult and barren lands. This included mountains, deserts, and the Great Plains. So this is good stuff, Coronado and his expedition getting kudos for the exploring they did, and that's deserved. But there's a darker side to all of this. As people began to realize the scope of Coronado's journeys, they downplayed the military nature of the expedition. More modern historians started to paint Coronado as a generally benevolent guy. He wasn't like Cortez. Sure, there were some unfortunate incidents, but those were often the fault of other men. And to a degree, that was true. Some of the most vicious and violent acts were not the result of Coronado's direct orders, but of his subordinates. Coronado didn't burn people alive. That was one of his captains, García López de Cardenas, who, by the way, was later convicted of war crimes for his actions and had to pay a small fine and serve one year on the frontier. That was it. In the end, Coronado came north looking to conquer a great empire, and he treated almost everyone and everything with that in mind. His expedition was a military campaign. He had the advantage of superior weaponry and a very focused army, and he used it. If some of his men stepped over the line, well, he probably said, that happens in war. I've read that Coronado was a pragmatic man. He doesn't seem like the kind of person who was vindictive or malicious, but he was a soldier in an occupied territory. By default, he expected the natives to abide by his rule, and if they didn't agree, well, it could and did get ugly. What that means is that this early view of Coronado as this sort of nice traveler is not true, not even close. Remember that inquiry regarding the expedition that was started in 1544? Well, we still have those testimonials, and we have other documents, such as the book by Pedro de Castañeda. This gives us all sorts of specific details about the expedition, and it was violent, and not just a couple of incidents. It is a constant theme. I bring this up because it is very much in line with the experience of the Spanish conquest of the New World. And if you are interested, I put a link in our resources section of the Coronado page on our website, linking to a bunch of these documents. Anyhow, let's move on from that part, and I want to note a few ways that Coronado has been remembered. In the United States, there is a national forest that bears his name. There are towns, landmarks, schools, highways, and even a mineral named after him. The name Coronado pops up in songs, movies, and books usually, but not always, it revolves around looking for gold. One reference I want to mention is from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. In the film, the golden jewel-encrusted cross of Coronado is discovered in a Utah cave. It is explained that the cross was given to Vasquez de Coronado by Hernán Cortez in 1521. Well, that could not have happened as Coronado would have been 11 or 12 years old at the time and still living in Spain. Now, I do want to mention something else regarding the series, and that is not about Coronado but the source of his obsession, the Seven Cities of Gold. In reality, that's the bigger story here. Coronado is a really good representation of a Spanish conquistador of the era. You can give him kudos for his role as an explorer, but that comes with the acknowledgement of the violence he and his men inflicted upon the region's native people, which is not insignificant. But the idea of the Seven Cities of Gold, or Cibola, or El Dorado, or whatever, has endured, even flourished. We seem to have an obsession with stories such as this, and Cibola is one of history's great lost treasure tales. Some form of Cibola has been in countless works of fiction and non-fiction for ages. There are movies, TV shows, novels, and video games that reference the fabled city of gold. One of the most famous is Nicolas Cage, searching for Cibola in National Treasure 2. What's amazing is that modern-day filmmakers can be so enthralled by the stories of the seven cities of gold, just like Coronado and others were nearly 500 years ago it really demonstrates the power of such stories. I will wrap up today by just giving my two cents about Coronado. The first thing is that, as I said, he is a really good representation of a Spanish conquistador from this era. That comes with the good and bad things. I admire his explorations. To go on such long journeys into the interior of an unknown region is not easy. But in a lot of ways, my feelings on the guy are mixed. His greatest trait seems to be his persistence and fortitude. If they really did march 6,000 miles, that's pretty amazing. That's like going from Miami to Vancouver and back. Yet he didn't have the imagination or inclination to be more than just a conquistador. He had the biggest stick on the block. Get out of line, bonk on the head. And for all the exploring Coronado did, it was motivated almost exclusively by greed. There's just not that much to be excited about with that in mind. But like I said, this is an important expedition because it really gives us a focused examination of a major expedition by the Spanish in the New World. And let's face it, searching for lost treasure is just kind of cool. Anyhow, that is it for our series on Spanish Conquistador Francisco Vázquez de Coronado. I hope you've enjoyed our tale. I want to do a shout-out to our supporters, including those on Patreon. People like Thomas, Susan, Ralph, Eric, Philip C., Peter, Chris, Mitchell, Elizabeth, Mark, John Paul... Eileen, Gregory, Dan, George, Amon, Catherine, Cameron, David A., Craig, Benjamin, Andrew Rudy, Robert, Donnell, Collier, Christopher, and so many others who help make the show happen. Thank you very much. If you are interested in helping the show out, go to our website, explorespodcast.com. You can pick up a patron or make a direct donation via PayPal. Or you know what? Share the show with friends and family on your social media feeds. I can get no better advertised than you telling others about how much you dig the podcast. Thank you. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. Please take care, and I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows to tickle your fancy, including Southern Gothic and Tumble, a science podcast for kids.